Hey there, I'm Justin Zyduck. I'm Jim Cannon, and you're listening to The Iron Age of Comics, a critical reevaluation of comic books from about 1985 to 2000. Today we are talking about Justice League International, launched in 1987 with Justice League No. 1 by Keith Giffen, J.M. DeMatteis, and Kevin McGuire. We've done a bunch of episodes on DC Comics' various reboots and revamps following Crisis on Infinite Earths. So it shouldn't be a big surprise that we'd eventually take a look at what they did with their premier superhero team. But the reason it might be interesting to talk about now is that we've just finished several hours on Watchmen. Hmm. And it's um, kind of cousin over at Marvel, Squadron Supreme. And throughout this podcast, we keep going back to, you know, oh, Watchmen was hugely influential on superhero comics. Everybody tried to pick up on what it was doing in various ways and to various degrees of success. Um, but Jim, I know if there's, a, if there's one thing that you hate. It's telling without showing. It's true, you boys. (laughs) So part of what we're going to do here is take a look at the first year or so of JLI. It's sort of a case study. In some ways, it's a continuation of, or even escalation, of Watchmen's deconstructionist reconsideration of what the superhero means in this modern world of the late 1980s. But in other ways, particularly in its focus on comedy, it's an alternative or counterpoint to the very self-serious, grim and gritty tone that was starting to take over superhero comics. So this is a really like cherished, I think it's fair to say, um, formative run for a lot of fans. All you have to do is mention like the duo of Blue Beetle and Booster Gold or the Martian Manhunter eating Oreos or, you know, Bwahaha or One Punch. Um, And you trigger some warm, fuzzy feelings in a lot of fans. So I'll ask uh, you, Jim, does that trigger anything in, in you? Do you and the JLI go way back? Sort of. <laughs> As I believe I mentioned previously, while my, my brother and I started with Marvel, he was more adventurous and started trying out DC long before I did. Hmm. I think mostly because as an X-Men fan, he was a John Byrne guy. So Man of Steel made him take a look or Maybe the crisis and the marvelization of the DCU made him curious. I, I don't know. And, and since he still doesn't listen to the show, he's not <laughs> likely to chime in and explain. Regardless, I remember reading the first issue of Justice League and not having much familiarity with the characters and being underwhelmed by the villains who were just a bunch of terrorists. Mm. Wither the Legion of Doom, right? <laughs> So I honestly don't know when I started going back and getting this series as back issues. Late 90s, early aughts, I think? I believe I actually started with Justice League Europe first and backtracked to Justice League International. So, yeah, that's kind of like a roundabout way to say that Bwahaha and One Punch do give me the warm fuzzies. Or to be more accurate, I, I laughed out loud quite a few times during this reread. All right. Yeah, so I was mostly a Marvel boy until Mark Wade's run on The Flash and the um, the Grant Morrison, Howard Porter, JLA really got me invested in following DC regularly. So like most of these early post-crisis runs that we talk about, 
there's something that I had to read like several years after the fact in back issue bins. Um, I suspect that once again, I was influenced by Wizard Magazine in deciding to pick this up for the <laughs> for the first time. Um, so like JLI isn't like my Justice League the way that it is for some people. But I was really fascinated when I started catching up with this in the 90s. Because like my my Justice League experience went from like the traditional kind of super friends thing, right? To the um the postmodernist neo-retro, whatever you want to call what Grant Morrison was doing on uh, JLA. Mm. So it was weird finding out that like there was a gap in between when the Justice League was like sort of a a workplace sitcom, you know, in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah. So like like this is a point in time in which like you know the 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 Teen Titans were doing like very serious superhero business. And the league was focused on a bunch of wacky hijinks. <laughs> yeah. Now, the interesting thing is that, like, the Justice League of America had actually just gone through an overhaul a couple of years earlier in 1984, although they didn't get a new number one at that time. In that relaunch, or in that, in that revamp, veteran members like Aquaman, Martian Manhunter, Elongated Man, and Zatanna were teamed with younger recruits, Vibe, Vixen, uh, Steel, but not the Steel that you're probably thinking of and another female character with a code name that I'm not sure we're supposed to say anymore. Yeah. It's a contested word referring primarily to traveling Romani people of Europe. Right. And I say it's contested because some Romani are okay with it and some are not. And we'll err on the side of tolerance and avoid saying it. But as recently as the flash television show on the CW, that name was still being used for that particular character. Interesting. I didn't, I was not watching at that point. That, that is interesting. Um, but yeah, so like Wolfman and Perez's New Teen Titans was appealing to the sort of readers who were into X-Men, right, at the time. So the thought was like maybe the JLA should be more like the Avengers and focus on characters who didn't already have their own books so they could do the whole, you know, character development, the, the soap opera stuff that Marvel really, you know, made its, um, made its money on. Um, have you ever read any of these, this so-called, um, Justice League Detroit? Cause I, I have not. No, I haven't either, which is really weird now that I think about it. I don't really do back issues anymore. And I, I can't imagine that run has been collected in trades. I guess it's probably available online through some app or comiXology or something, but I don't really do that either. So. I have to think about this. <laughs> um, be, beca because it is the future, right? And yeah. the market is very different now. I checked. There is an omnibus of is there really all the Detroit stuff. Um, Amazon has it for three hundred bucks, so like it actually might just be cheaper to get individual issues. Holy cow! Track yeah, tracking down. But yeah, this, this is this is the world that we live in now. That like even things that were not you know very well received at the time will now be sold thirty years later for exorbitant amount, amounts of money. <sighs> wow. Yeah, and I say that this version of the team wasn't well received because um, it wasn't, and in, <laughs> in, in just a couple of years afterwards, uh, DC decided that like, well, you know, we're doing a bunch of books, doing revamps for a bunch of books after Crisis. Let's do the Justice League too. They used the Legends crossover in late '86 and early '87 to get rid of the Detroit Leaguers. They even uh, killed some of them off just to sort of show that we we mean business here, right? And they introduced a new team. So writer-artist Keith Giffen really wanted the job. Um, he actually, like, in, he, in every version of the story that he tells, this bit is consistent. That, like, he would bug editor Andy Helfer and say, like, come on, I want to do the Justice League. Let me do the Justice League. I got ideas. 
give me the book. Um, so like at this point, Halford relented. I guess he also thought that Giffen would bring good stuff to the table because Giffen had been doing things. Um, he'd been doing Legion of Superheroes and Ambush Bug and that kind of stuff mm-hmm. to this point. So, um, but Giffen didn't, didn't want to write like the dialogue. He was still a little uncertain about that. So, uh, Helfer actually retained J.M. DeMatteis, who actually wrote the tail end of the Detroit League, to script it. So this makes Giffen and DeMatteis ostensibly co-writers, but their working method was more like the old Marvel method than you might imagine, like two guys in a room, you know, like pacing back and forth going like, well, what does Black Canary say next, right? <laughs> <laughs> so the way that it worked was that like Giffen, like totally on his own, would plot the book by drawing layouts of each page with some notes in the margins to help explain like what the scene is supposed to convey, maybe some sort of preliminary dialogue. And you would basically get like a, like a sketched out mini comic mm-hmm. by the end of it. And these layouts would be the basis for the penciler, who we'll talk about in a second, to draw, and for DiMatteis to write the finished scripted dialogue. And while DiMatteis says that he and Giffen would sometimes, you know, talk stories over on the phone or go out to lunch when they were picking up their paychecks in the office, mostly they just sort of each did their bit, you know, and trusted that the other one was going to cover the rest of it, right? Mm. And they didn't have a whole lot of uh, other direct collaboration. You know, it's really hard for me, like even knowing the story, to imagine something so based in character interaction and humor being written this way. Like it's, it's, it's like writing a sitcom by blocking where the actors are going to stand and what facial expressions they're going to have. And then just like dubbing in jokes later somehow. Um, but it apparently worked, right? Yeah, it, it did rather well, in fact. So it's maybe a toss up whether DeMatteis is best known today for JLI or for his Spider-Man work in the um, late 80s and early 90s. Um, particularly the story Craven's Last Hunt, which is something we'll probably get to on the show at some point. Um, but he's got a pretty rich bibliography. Um, he has an entire line of comics coming out right now from his publisher, uh, Spellbound Comics. Uh, Keith Giffen, of course, we lost in October of last year at the age of 70. Um, he was a hugely prolific guy, like especially in this mid-80s time period we're talking about. But he was still turning up on regular runs on assignments at DC, like well into the 21st century when um, some other people who, you know, of his generation were not necessarily getting those kind of gigs anymore. His um, sort of skewed sensibility about superheroes was all over the post-crisis DC universe and was very influential throughout the Iron Age. You know that old adage about how you never really appreciate what you have until it's gone? I never really thought too much about Keith Giffen, to be honest. And mm-hmm. most of the time, I could take or leave his stuff. In fact, probably I mostly left it. But the news of his passing really knocked me for a loop. And it, it made me realize just how important his work has actually been to me. That sense of humor in particular that he brought to everything, he never took superheroes too seriously. Yeah, he was um, irreverent, but not like smug, if that makes sense, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, because then, because when he did take them seriously, it it still worked. But there's also always that that tongue in cheek, mm-hmm. that nod and a wink. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna miss him. So Kevin McGuire was a regular penciler, barring you know some fill-ins here and there. He was essentially an unknown at the time. 
He had art credits in the um, official handbook of the Marvel Universe at Marvel and some who's who at DC. Um, he might have done like a, like a Secret Origins special or something in there. But this was really his big break. Um, and he becomes key to the success of this book. Like we often say, you know, sometimes modern comics discourse undervalues or ignores artists. Um, McGuire is, in, you know, as inseparably associated with his book as Giffen and DiMatteis are. The, the cover to the first issue, you know, which has been, you know, sort of, they have, they've done like swipes and, you know, sort of homages to that over the years. Mm-hmm. And that really defines like the brand of JLI, which is why they keep reusing it. That group shot, um, everybody looking up at the, you know, the, the quote unquote camera. They have more attitude than like your traditional smiling super friends, but it's also, you know, not taking itself too seriously, right? Because it's, it's sort of like, look at these tough guys, right? Um, but what really helps sell the comedy in this book is Maguire's facial expressions. There's a reputation for comics artists and especially like superhero comics artists to be more concerned with like action and anatomy and then just sort of rotate through a series of stock facial expressions, right? Like this is how I draw somebody who's angry. This is how I draw somebody who's sad. This is how I draw <laughs> somebody who's happy, right? And we just keep seeing the same faces it's, over It's and all over. the same gritted teeth for all three expressions. Right. Yeah. right. <laughs> But like McGuire, on the other hand, is like very exaggerated without necessarily being cartoony. Like his his art is on the, the end of the spectrum that's aspiring to realism, I, I would say. So it sometimes sort of looks like when you take a photo of somebody while they're talking and you sort of like, you get that at a weird time and they're sort of like, maybe like one eye is a little bit closed and they're just sort of, it's like a weird picture that you wouldn't use in like the newspaper, but it works well like when you're writing a, when you're drawing a comedy series. I, I will, in one of our, our classic Iron Age of Comics um, fisticuffs disagreements, <laughs> we'll take mild issue with the the notion that McGuire is not cartoony, because I, I think he, he, hmm. he's absolutely a cartoonist. But like on that animator sort of spectrum, like he manages to capture the most important split second in a panel, like you say, like the perfect snapshot. Mm-hmm. But his figures move like animated figures like obviously without actually animating them there's a lot going on in the gutters those spaces between the panels but you get that flow just from how mcguire sets up his figures it feels like a cartoon without being i guess without being cartoony no, I, um, I can see that so i, I I'm, I'm splitting a very fine hair obviously <laughs> that's what that's what we do it's yeah, and I I, do, I want to call it a particular moment that I I love, but there's a single panel of Blue Beetle laughing so hard that he's crying, and he wears these bubble like goggles, so to wipe the tears from his eyes, he has to slip his glove fingers under the goggle lenses, <laughs> and that's just a level of detail that few artists, few comic book artists can pull off, and even fewer attempt. Yeah. It's so perfectly captures a recognizable body language. And that is McGuire's real genuine gift. Like he, he does that stuff and it looks very natural and honest and, and good. Yeah. Well, yeah. And like the reason that I think that's so important is because like JLI will feature people, you know, standing around having conversations, right? Cause we're, it's, it's very joke heavy. It's very dialogue heavy. And something that I complained about when we were talking about Ultimate Spider-Man was that it tended to turn into like sort of talking heads, 
you know, just sort of, you know, Peter's face, Uncle Ben's face, Peter's face. And like, that's not very visually engaging, but I feel like McGuire puts a lot more acting into the faces. So it's like, it, it's like you're watching a comedy performance. You know, I, I sometimes think about like what would happen if Kevin McGuire had drawn Ultimate Spider-Man. It would have taken a lot longer to come out. I mean, that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, Fair yeah. Enough. I, th- I think there's a plenty of action in these issues too. The mm. conversations are part of the whole, but I think they're a bit of spice rather than the main focus as it was in ultimate Spider-Man. It's like, maybe this is where that sort of thing becomes a strong focus rather than like the occasional thing. Yeah. It's sort of that a step on that pathway between action comics number one and ultimate spider-man number one (laughs) (laughs) right allowed a grand statement yeah (laughs) so a note about where the series comes out in relation to watchmen uh justice league number one has a cover date of may 1987 which is also the cover date of watchmen number nine although in practice um that actually means that both of those books would have come out several months before that so like i guess you know early 87 right so we can't assign watchmen too much direct influence because like it's not even over yet right but Watchmen wasn't like some kind of under the radar success like it was a big deal during its release as it was coming out and we do know that people in the industry were paying close attention to it like as it was happening um Mark Wade tells a funny story on Tom Brevard's Substack uh someone working for DC who Mark Wade doesn't name kept bugging Andy Helfer which is apparently a thing that everybody was doing at DC, just bugging Andy yes. for things until he would until he would relent. But he was, <laughs> but he he was bugging Andy Helfer like, "Can you let me see issue twelve of Watchmen before it comes out? I really want to see what's gonna what's gonna happen, right?" So people are excited about it. And this per- person was apparently so relentless that Helfer mocked up like totally fake pages for issue twelve huh. that were purposely bizarre just to like shut this person up and <laughs> mislead them about what was, what was actually going to happen. I mean, this is all to say that, like, as Watchmen wraps up and JLI develops over the coming months, it becomes less and less like a traditional Justice League comic, you know, and it doesn't start like a traditional Justice League comic, but it becomes even less like a Justice League comic as it goes on, and it morphs into something else. So, like, is that, you know, taking influence from Watchmen? You know, you, you can you can be the judge, right? And like we talked about with Squadron Supreme, there is something in the air at this time anyway about the realistic superhero, right? That idea, pushing boundaries, that kind of thing. And Watchmen is just one instance of that. But, you know, Watchmen was already running through creators' minds at this time, to some degree at least, right? Like, what can we learn? What should we be doing? So I think it would be hard not to be influenced by the hottest thing of the moment, right? So this is a character-driven book. We should just go through the initial roster one by one and talk about who these characters are and how they work, especially um, in the context of the time, right? This, this early post-crisis DC universe. There's a lot of sort of second tier characters on the roster, which might make it seem like this was another attempt at doing a more Avenger style team. But Giffen says that his original idea when he was, you know, bugging any helper did, I want, I want this job was that he wanted to return to a more traditional heavy hitter kind of justice league. But the problem was they couldn't get access to a lot of those characters. You know, John Byrne, Superman and George Perez as Wonder Woman. Those revamps were still ongoing concerns. And um, we have discussed both on previous episodes. If you want to go into the archives and check those out, um, (laughs) I like like to plug, right? Um, Yeah. 
but yeah, like those reboots, like characterizations and continuity for both of those characters were being worked out on the fly. So they were kind of hands off for other people to really do anything substantive with. Um, they show up in Legends for a bit, but they, they, they beg off actively joining the Justice League, right? It's like, if you need us for an emergency, we'll, we'll show up, which like, of course you will, right? It would be, you'd yeah. be a real jerk if you just refused to, to, to do that. But yeah, Wally West is in Legends as well. And he had just become the Flash in Mike Barron's uh, relaunch. Um, but part of the idea with that development is that like he is a former teen sidekick who sort of graduated to the main role, but he's also not quite ready for the Justice League yet. So like no no Flash yet, right? Um, Aquaman was getting retooled around this time. Green Arrow was getting retooled. So much was up in the air post-crisis. It's a very exciting time in DC history, but I imagine that it was frustrating if you were trying to fill out a superhero team and nobody wants to share their toys. That's, yeah, that's crazy. I had never considered the idea that Giffen would want to do a Big Seven or that DC would have wanted to do that at the time. I look at this roster and I see such a smorgasbord of post-crisis messiness. You have classic Earth-1 DC characters with Earth-2 reinventions, secondary backup characters, a new god, an Earth-S character, one of the recently acquired Charlton heroes. It's very much a team that could only exist following the merger of all the alternate Earths into one Earth at the end of the crisis. Yeah, I'd always assumed that was the brief as well. That like this was a roster specifically tailored right? To show off a more integrated Marvel-style universe where all these characters who had been sort of siloed off before can just now, you know, hang out in the same room without explanation. And maybe that does affect, like, who eventually makes the cut on this roster, but by all accounts, it apparently just starts with, here's a bunch of guys you're not allowed to use, right? <laughs> Figure something that else is, out. That's so wild. Yeah. So this, uh, this ban on big names had one exception. Denny O'Neill, who was editing the Batman books at the time, um, he took pity on the predicament, right? And this is always <laughs> this is always framed in like their their telling of the story is like, yeah, he felt sorry for us. Right? <laughs> he didn't have to do this. He just like looked at us and was like, oh, you poor guys. You know what? <laughs> he said, fine, you can use Batman. You can put Batman on the Justice League, and we'll we'll make it work. Um, Dark Knight and Year One had just recently come out. And uh, in fact, in addition to Justice League number one and Watchmen number nine sharing a release month, um, the last issue of Year One did as well. So Batman is quite high profile at this moment in time, right? Um, Jim, you always say that Batman is all things to all people. Um, it's true. What is the JLI Batman to you? <laughs> yeah, um, I think Batman here is the perfect straight man. He's not yet the ultimate stick-up-his-butt jerk that he'll become in the fallout of the Morrison Bat-God, but he's he's well on his way. <laughs> he considers himself sort of running a team full of Robins and short pants, with the maybe the sole exception of Martian Manhunter. But he's also got a lot less patience for the people on the team because they're actually adults and should know what has to be done. And they don't. <laughs> so he, he just kind of orders them around and he doesn't really explain what he's doing or why he's making the decisions that he is making. And most of the team goes along with it because, you know, he's Batman, <laughs> but there is the occasional grumbling. I guess the only other person he generally gives credit, albeit mostly obliquely is black canary. He 
does occasionally praise Blue Beetle and Booster, which is fun. He does make a Star Trek joke at one point, <laughs> but mostly Batman's there to be the like the one known quantity and big gun on the team. He does cede his position as leader to the Martian Manhunter before the end of the first 12 issues, however, and I don't know if that is due to changing things going on in other books or relationships with the bad office, or if that's just kind of organic, but yeah, he stops being like the big shot and kind of becomes more of a, just one other person on the team who, who maybe has more weight than the others, but Mm -hmm. yeah, he seems a little uncomfortable in this, like this first year or so on the, on the, on the justice league, you sort of get the sense that he'd rather, not be there, but he feels like they, they need his supervision. You know, he makes yeah. a, he makes a, a condescending crack about like, oh, anytime you put a group of them in the room, in a room together, they'll inevitably start fighting. Right. So like, this, this is sort of an idea that will become really persistent throughout the iron age that Batman is, he's not one of the gang, right? He, he holds himself apart from the guys with powers and that's sort of a, you know, is that an inferiority thing? Is that a superiority thing? Because I had to get this good without having a magic ring. <laughs> but by the end of the Iron Age, like it will get to the point where Batman will be established that he has all these contingency plans to like take out his teammates if need be. But we're we're not quite there yet, right? Like he's stern, but you know this is not like the Frank Miller Batman exactly. This is not the the Morrison's bad god as you say. Like this is just mm. a. A you know a, a very professional straight laced dude with a determination, and, but he's like still a dude. Like the, there, right. there are many things that happen through the course of the series that he cannot affect because <laughs> right. he's just a guy in a bat suit. He's very far from his. I've got an instant answer to everything in in my utility belt sort of thing. So. Mm-hmm. He kind of needs all these other people to get the job done, which is a nice <laughs> dynamic to have with, with Batman. Yeah. So moving on, uh, Giffen and Demetrius, they also get to use a uh, classic original leaguer, John Jones. Um, I'm going to say John Jones. I know on, on the cartoon it's John Jones, but I'm. Yeah. Well, I, 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 don't, I don't know. I don't know what your, your, your feelings are on this, but. Uh, there's that apostrophe glottal stop thing. So I, I don't know. In my head, I always just revert to John Jones myself because <laughs> it's easier. So we're, so we're not going to fight about this, right? No, <laughs> no. I, sh- I should just be contrary, but yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, Jean Jones, <laughs> the, the Martian manager. Jones. Jones. Whatever this guy is called, the Martian manager. Uh, he, he's on the team. He's a holdover from the Detroit League. Um, today we tend to think of him as being really like inseparable from the league. You know, it's not a justice league without John, but he'd actually been written out of the DC universe pretty much from about 1968 to 1984. He had a couple of like guest appearances and stuff, but like, I think that this series is one of the things that really cements that reputation as a mainstay mm-hmm. of the justice league. Um, in this series, he's kind of the adult in the room, you know, like he, he's wiser, He's more mature than everyone else, uh, even Batman, frankly, who it's, 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 it's implied that like he sort of enjoys on some level the sort of power dynamics and like being the alpha dog. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, John is just, you know, he's there to, to be, you know, the dependable one, the rock. Um, sometimes he's amused at the other leaguers antics and sometimes, 
he's very much unamused. He's also quietly the most powerful member of the team. He appears to be content to hang back and let Batman call the shots and the new kids do most of the work. And he does get taken down quite often by flamethrowers and the like, but he also basically beats the crap out of Captain Marvel at one point without breaking a sweat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I find it interesting, too, that John goes behind Batman's back to make a deal with Maxwell Lord that nets the Justice League international status and a sanction from the United Nations, and Batman doesn't say boo. Yeah. I think I think that says a lot, given how Batman has acted towards everyone else this whole run. Like, oh, John made a call? Cool. Let, let's do that then. <laughs> it's sort of an endorsement of Martian Manhunter in a less flashy way than all those Marvel number twos where Spider-Man guest stars to let the kids know to buy the new book. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a key tenet of the things are different spirit of the post-crisis DCU that, you know, Batman and Superman they aren't best as pals anymore, right? They don't entirely see eye to eye because they have different methods or whatever. But it's nice that, you know, Batman still has one super powerful alien that he can be, <laughs> that he that he feels trust for. Well, there's that, that great line from New Frontier about spending a million dollars on a space rock just in case versus a, a nickel for a pack of matches. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Batman seems to generally like and trust Martian Mander. Maybe because they're both detectives? I don't know. Mm, yeah, that's... Uh, so one of the advantages to there being 3,600 Green Lanterns in the universe is that they can spare one for the Justice League. <laughs> Andy Helfer convinced Giffen to use Guy Gardner instead of the uh, any of the more established ones. In our Emerald Dawn episode, which you can also find in our archives, um, we talked about how the only real requirement to be a Green Lantern is fearlessness, or at least the ability to overcome fear without any other real tests to character. So this is kind of a deconstruction of the assumptions that work there. Oh, oh no, there is a secondary requirement, and I think I mentioned it. At least I hope I did. Uh, it is honesty. And I, I oh. think I talked about how being honest and fearless didn't necessarily make you a good person. Sure, yeah. Like, like rude people will often say they're just being honest, right? Which is, yeah, which is guy to a T. <laughs> <Right>. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because he, he is fearless, but he's also honest in his way, but to a fault, right? Like, he's hyper-aggressive, he's egotistical, he's macho, he's jingoistic. He, he is the embodiment of American toxic masculinity. And that's all by design, by the way. Like, this isn't some kind of thing that's like, oops, this, you know, this hasn't aged well since then. Like, he was supposed to be a jerk in 1987, right? Uh, very much so, uh, and it's one of the sources of comedy, in fact, as as well as the references to Rainbow. Yes. Which was a thing at the time. Yeah. Uh, and and this, this is very much the idea of, of Sylvester Stallone that is like Rambo and Rocky and not necessarily like the guy who directed Staying Alive, which, <laughs> which was Stallone, but a different kind of Stallone. It was the same guy. I don't understand. Um, but yeah, Guy's attitude puts him into conflict with Batman. He's not as intimidated by Batman as the rest of the team is because he is, you know, fearless, remember, right? And he thinks that he should be the leader. Yeah, he's not as intimidated, no, but he, he ends up doing what Batman tells him to do it anyway, like every <laughs> single time. Well, at the end of the day, it's just a good idea, right? <laughs> Most yeah, of the time. Right. He's, he's like, I'm a and stupid Batman, but then I'll just go and do it. It's funny. Right. So this leads to one of the most famous moments in the entire run. And, you know, for some fans, probably they're one of their favorite moments in any comic ever. 
right? That Gardner is spoiling for a fight. He charges at Batman and Batman just drops him with one punch to the nose. <laughs> so, so, you know, at the risk of over explaining a joke, right? This is a very Giffen-esque subversion of expectations that like that issues cover hypes. There's going to be a Green Lantern versus Batman fight. You're trained to anticipate this kind of big multi-page, you know, Jack Kirby style superhero brawl with a lot of back and forth and a lot of banter. But, you know, none of that. It's, you know, it's settled two hit style, you know, like me hitting you, you hitting the ground. <laughs> or like Indiana Jones fighting the swordsman. Yeah. So, yeah, the the workplace comedy aspect comes out particularly strong in this scene. <laughs> not Not so much because of the violence, but because how everyone else reacts to what just happened. Blue Beetle is the one who gives us the immortal one punch. And Black Canary is visibly distraught that she missed the whole thing. It's these personalities bouncing off one another and reacting unconventionally to a rather conventional setup, the hero versus hero narrative, which creates the comedy by inverting expectations. So, like, like imagine Reed Richards laughing at Ben Grimm knocking out Johnny Storm and Sue being upset she didn't see it happen. Like, that, that's, that's not how it plays out normally. <laughs> Since you brought him up, let's talk about the Ted Cord Blue Beetle. Because I feel like this is sort of where you can get a sense of Watchmen starting to bleed through. Obviously, you know, with the Watchmen characters being analogs to the Charlton characters, the whole reason that Night Owl exists as a character is so that Blue Beetle can continue to be viable in the DC universe that they're, that they're building here, right? Mm -hmm. But Blue Beetle here, I think, becomes informed by Night Owl, at least. Because like, like Dan, right, he, he's self-aware about the superhero thing. He knows that being a superhero is a little bit ridiculous, and he refuses to take anything too seriously. Um, this is a lot of people's favorite character in this series, and this run defines him to this day. But it defines him as kind of a goofball, right? Like <laughs> it's sometimes a plot point in like other DCU stories that like people just don't take Ted seriously. So do you think that's a, like a bad thing? Like this character is, is ruined or we've, you know, we've uh, done something shameful to this classic Ditko creation. <laughs> or do you think that it's, it's useful to have a guy like this in the ecosystem of the DC universe? Well, I think that, Goofball aspect is something that gets overemphasized. Ted is an engineer as well as a two-fisted adventurer and, yes, a goofball. He, he designed and, and built the flying bug vehicle the team uses as a primary transportation for most of these issues. He uses his technical acumen to take down the killer robot that Booster Gold is fighting. And he has other moments like that peppered throughout. He does make a lot of jokes or react with, huge heaving laughs when something absurd happens but that's not all that blue beetle is about i think it's probably the easiest thing to remember but i think there's more going on yeah i i do agree that the comic itself shows us a pretty a pretty competent you know blue beetle he's not the team dummy he's not like a like a screw up or anything um but he complains in the first issue that he's not being given enough to do and then in the fourth issue, he says, oh, man, I'm always just the guy pushing buttons behind the scenes. So I think there might be kind of an inferiority complex, like feedback loop kind of thing going on where Beetle feels a little undervalued and then like adopts this goofing off attitude, which in turn makes people and, and maybe even like 
readers, right? Like further underestimate them. Cause we were talking about, um, when we talked about animal man, right? Buddy makes a crack there about like, Hey, how did blue beetle get into the justice league? And John says like, Hmm, good question. So like, <laughs> it's, it, this isn't like Grant Morrison, like taking a shot at the blue beetle. This is like, this is established as like the blue beetle is the guy who doesn't really seem to fit here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, and at the same time, like this is not the, the Justice League without Blue Beetle. So, so Booster Gold arrives in issue three, and he was a fairly new addition to the DC universe as a character. He was an athlete, but an otherwise fairly unexceptional 25th century man who comes back to the present and becomes a superhero pretty much solely because his access to future technology, right? Like in the same way that like Ash in Army of Darkness is a superhero in the Middle Ages because he has a car and a gun and a, and a chainsaw, right? <laughs> so uh, Booster and Beale strike up a friendship. And today we rarely think about one without the other. What do you think makes the blue and gold team so enduring? Have you ever met someone for the first time and just like instantly clicked with them? And within a few words, you've realized that you're both on the same wavelength, know all the same references and jokes and have a similar sense of humor. Because that's what happens the first time Ted Korg meets Booster Gold. They're in a high-pressure situation where the Royal Flush Gang has attacked the Justice League, and a huge robot is wrecking the team, and Booster and Beetle team up to take it down. I think they instantly recognize the competence and ability of the other, but it also turns out they have the same sense of humor, and they instantly bond and become best friends. That's just nice to see. <laughs> yeah, I think... They depict a certain kind of male friendship that wasn't often seen at DC Comics at the time. Because, like, Barry Allen and Hal Jordan, like, we were sort of told that they were friends, right? But, like, because, like, they would work together. They always have each other's back. It's like being army buddies or, you know, comrades in arms or, or something. Like, they're, they're collegiate, but it seems like it's more about shared experience than chemistry. Like, it's hard to imagine... If they weren't superheroes, Hal Jordan, the test pilot, and Barry Allen, the forensics guy, just like hanging out of their own volition. I mean, then you have like, you know, Superman and Batman, their their relationship is always sort of supposed to be based on, you know, trust and respect and sort of mutual admiration. But like Ted and Booster just find each other in this group and it turns out they just like hanging out together, you know? Simple as that, right? It's it's not about being part of some kind of sacred brotherhood. You do buy this, I think, as a more realistic or at least relatable version of friendship. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I will also note that one of the ways the creators avoid making Batman a complete jerk is by allowing him to notice and appreciate how good Beetle and Booster are at their jobs. Like, he actually gives them kudos. <laughs> yeah, the nice thing about when Batman is standoffish is that when he when he's not being standoffish, you feel like, oh, that's that's sweet, right? <laughs> <laughs> it stands. He out. has nice things to say too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, Jack Kirby's New Gods character Scott Free, Mister Miracle, is on the team as well. So he's kind of an odd fit here. Um, he's known as an escape artist. That's his, that's his deal. But it doesn't really come up in this first year. He ends up being sort of the tech guy because he has access to, you know, technology from New Genesis and Apocalypse. And that, you know, ends up sort of further reducing Blue Beetle, who is also the tech guy, to be sort of the guy who drives the Justice League around in, the, in his ship, I guess. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, I guess it's like a bit of a toss-up whether Mr. Miracle or Blue Beetle are the, the tech guy. Like, Mr. Miracle has a slight edge just by having access to a mother box, which has, you know, magical powers over life and machinery. But also because he recognizes all the new gods' tech that the team encounters over the course of these 12 issues. But Beetle holds his own. And Mr. Miracle also provides some domestic comedy, as he's the only member of the team who is married. So he has to call his wife and tell her he'll be late coming home because he has monitor duty and such. Yeah, there is some humor that can be construed as like, ha ha, look at the guy afraid of his angry wife, right? Because she's like on the phone to him and like yelling, like, we haven't had any time together in, you know, in weeks or whatever. But I don't think it's it's just that, right? Because like Big Barda... This character is actually like a female fury of apocalypse. She's a, you know, alien warrior woman and she could like literally break Scott in two. Right. So it's not, so I think like, I think that's the joke, right. That it's like seeing these alien demigods sort of recast into these stereotypical suburban couple roles. Yeah. And I think it's in an annual or maybe a justice league quarterly where there's a story about Scott and Barda in the suburbs inviting the team out for a barbecue that is just delightful. <laughs> like the Batmobile gets stuck in traffic. It's great. <laughs> and there is possibly a hint of watchmaniness here in that uh, Mr. Miracle is accompanied by his manager, Oberon. And there, at least it's suggested initially that like what Oberon is interested in is having Mr. Miracle be on the team to sort of raise his profile because that would be, be good for his his escape artist career. And so, like, that's kind of like the original Silk Spectre, right, of where, like, the whole mm. superhero thing is a a way to, to drum up, you know, attention, basically. It's something we discussed uh, in Animal Man, our episode on Animal Man, is that being in the Justice League post-crisis is something that often gets treated like it's a good career move rather than it's, like, a, a sacred responsibility. Like, it's, this isn't, like, Spider-Man anymore. Like, I, I lost out on a job because I was doing Spider-Man stuff. This is, like... Being a superhero will open doors for you in this post-crisis DC universe. <laughs> yeah, there's an ongoing subplot that bears greater fruit further down the line where the the previous international team of superheroes is shut down as the new Justice League ascends and all the international superheroes find themselves out of a job. <laughs> and two of them, the Green Flame and Ice Maiden, who are better known today as the Justice League members Fire and Ice, end up joining the team because otherwise they can't afford to pay rent. <laughs> right. Like this is the ultimate and realistic approaches to superheroes, right? Where like it's just your job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You punch in and punch out. <laughs> and you punch Guy Gardner. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, down the roster, they get to use Captain Marvel, the, the Shazam guy, right? And this is actually kind of a big deal because, like, this is a, you know, he's a legitimate comics icon dating back to the Golden Age. Uh, DC had acquired the rights or some years prior to this and had some hit and miss attempts at revival, mostly misses, maybe. And um, mm -hmm. But now he's, like, fully integrated into the DC universe. And this run helps define what this character is going to look like in this post-crisis era because it leans into what distinguishes Captain Marvel from Superman. The fact that it's a kid who says a magic word and transforms into an adult. 
So Billy Batson retains his personality even when he's transformed into Captain Marvel. And he's not just like any kid, right? Like he's a real goody two-shoes kid. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, the, and the comedy comes from this like friendly gee whiz attitude bouncing off people like Batman or Guy Gardner. So how do you think this works, like in, in your opinion? Because I know that like some Golden Age fans sort of bristle at this kind of making a joke out of him thing. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I mean, this works fine within the framework of the series. With a cast this size, even with so many characters leaving, being unavailable, or getting temporarily incapacitated, there's, there's only so much room to spend on any one particular character. So they all get boiled down to their most essential, broadest characteristics, which is very similar to a 22-minute-a-week sitcom actually. But I, I do think it does catch a Marvel a disservice. Billy mentions via Thought Balloon that he's 14 years old, but yes, he seems much younger given how he acts. He's mm-hmm. mostly stupefied by all these adults acting like children, and he he makes no use of the wisdom of Solomon to, to fit in or understand. Yeah, because like the the fantasy for children, right? Reading Captain Marvel in the Golden Age was, you know, I wish I was big, right? It's that kind of that kind of thing that like children imagine that adults have all this like power and liberation. Um, you can stand up to bullies, you know, and like in in this series, it's not like it's cool that you get to say the magic word and then you're an adult and you get to hang out with the Justice League. Like it's not fun to be in, in this justice league for captain marvel because he's always he always feels like he has to catch up to everybody else so i i feel very anxious for him on his behalf uh when i read this and like you know he gets bullied by a mean kid anyway it's just that he, it's, it's, it's yeah. another adult named guy gardner yeah and he also suffers from the typical writerly problem that afflicts any supremely powered character in a team book like superman or thor or green lantern and that he's he's often quickly sidelined in battle despite being the second most and perhaps arguably most powerful character in the book and having a whole swag of powers that he never gets to actually use <laughs> i mean it's hardly a surprise when captain marvel decides to leave in issue seven i, I don't think anybody really figured out what to do with him and to be honest with John on the team, he's kind of redundant, yeah. <laughs> which is, you know, the, the problem with Captain Marvel in a universe that includes Superman already. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. It's a, yeah. It's a common problem. And I think just the one thing that you get from having Captain Marvel around is that kind of, you know, G with personality. And then, but after Guy Gardner gets punched out and then he hits his head, he becomes like, a really overly nice guy. And so like now you have two yeah. really, really, really friendly, helpful people on the team. And yeah, there's not really a, a, even a place for the characterization anymore. Yeah. So in a similar boat to Captain Marvel is Dr. Fate. Cause like he's also just sort of on the team for a bit. And then he leaves before the year is out. He's Dr. Fate. Again, supremely powerful character, but doesn't really do much, but he's, he's, like more of a guest star than an actual team member. Mm-hmm. In the first issue, when the team has to take down terrorists who've taken over the United Nations, Fate leaves headquarters, but then I'm I'm not sure he even shows up at the UN. <laughs> like he's just like, oh, this guy can't be bothered. This is beneath <laughs> me. 
uh, he shows up later to deal with an actual mystic threat, but as that story plays out, it really could have just been a solo Doctor Fate adventure. Mm-hmm. I think this is a, another example of, of Giffen and DiMatteis not really knowing how to fit him on the team. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I guess, you know, Giffen's drawn Doctor Fate before. He and DiMatteis will do a Doctor Fate miniseries together, so they clearly like the character. It's not like we got stuck with this guy. It just seems like they really can't make him fit in there. Um. Black Canary. So we, we've talked about this a couple of times now on various episodes, but in the post-crisis continuity where Wonder Woman is now being depicted as only just recently starting out, uh, the Canary gets retconned to be one of the founders of the original Justice League. So like we've, you know, we think we say like when you read your old Justice League comics, you have to mentally erase Wonder Woman and just like sort of stick <laughs> uh, Black Canary in there somehow. And maybe it works and maybe it doesn't, but you're not supposed to think about it too hard, I guess. Um, but as a result of like getting sort of like grandmothered in, I guess, to the to the Justice League, <laughs> uh, <laughs> she's she's afforded more dignity than some of the newer members. You know, like she's assertive, but she's not some kind of you know derogatory, reactionary mocking of like what some people think a feminist is. You know, mostly it's just that she doesn't put up with Guy Gardner. Right. Yeah. Well, no <laughs> and, one does. Yeah. And you know, she, she makes, she makes like one crack about how the manhunters should maybe be called the person hunters, but otherwise it's not, <laughs> it, it's not that kind of thing. Right. Right. Um, so she's not like a wacky goofball character, like some of the others, but maybe that makes her a little less memorable as a character in a way. Cause like, this is a trap that, you know, sitcoms will historically fall into where you have you know, the, the sensible woman, right. Who rolls her eyes at the boy's antics and doesn't get a lot of jokes at, of her own. Cause her, her main comedic moment is just, she doesn't see guy getting punched out and she's bummed out about it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it, it it's, it's, it's kind of a passive thing, right? Yeah. I'm, I mean, it's, it's, it informs so much of her character, though, <laughs> right. you know, because, because that shows that she's like, she's not, uh, a wacky goofball but she's also not the the scold either like mm-hmm. she's glad that Gardner got knocked out but she's just upset that she missed it <laughs> <laughs> um so while she's not taking part in their antics she's not I don't think she's really rolling her eyes at them and as I said before Black Canary like John is afforded a level of respect from Batman that no one else receives and Unlike Captain Marvel, she gets some decent super feats, maybe because she's not too overpowered. So she's not useless the way that, you know, Dr. Fate is, even though he's also an incredibly powerful member of the team. Um, she doesn't get to stand out too much against all the more colorful personalities, but I think she, she fits in with them a little bit more. I think, I think she and Booster and and beetle they're like a trifecta of like the normal human beings on the team sure you know like batman is ostensibly that but he's also like i said you know batman with all that that yeah with all that that entails um but canary is not an alien or a magic person or a god or (laughs) anything she's just she's pretty good martial artist and she's got the canary cry yeah. So I think she doesn't stand out, but I don't think she is a misfit either. 
Like she's she's a good fit for this team. Sure. Yeah, that is that is probably fair. I'm just sort of um, you know, like when you, when you have like one woman on the team, right? That's yeah, yeah. sort of a problem. <laughs> so I, I do think that like when Fire and Ice join, they're they're afforded a little more color and personality because they no longer have to be like the sole representative of an entire gender. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, like that's just a general problem in most comics anyway. Like in Brave and the Bold number 28, there's only one woman on the team then. Um, Mm -hmm. In the golden age, when the Justice Society formed, Wonder Woman was their secretary. You know, (laughs) like there's, there's a certain level of sexism that was baked in from the concept at, from the beginning, unfortunately, because it's all dudes writing these comics and drawing them. And, you know, in our episode on the 90s X-Men cartoon, we, we did talk about how unusual it was that half the cast was women. Mm-hmm. So, like that, in the 80s, starts to change, at least. <laughs> but yeah. it hasn't changed yet in the Justice League. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, talking about this issue, right, we turn to the female Dr. Light who is uh, Kimio Hoshi. I don't know if that's, if you have a more accurate uh, pronunciation of that. That's better than what I would have started <laughs> with. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, she was introduced during Crisis on Infinite Earths. Um, she appears in costume on the cover of the first issue, but never wears that costume in the issue or in subsequent issues for that matter. Um, she enters the story because she's mysteriously come into possession of a Justice League communicator device but she doesn't really want to be on the team and nobody especially wants her there because of the circumstance in which she sort of finds herself thrown in with them. So, you know, she leaves like after, after tagging along on one adventure, like she's not really part of the justice league in these issues. And even the, um, the mysterious party who gave her the communicator doesn't really seem to care when she walks out. So like, we all see how this is bad, right? Like we don't need to get, you know, I don't need to belabor it, but like it just, without her on the cover of issue one, there's only one other female member of the team and, you know, no non-white members, right? Like, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to count John here as, no. as a non-white. I, I was going to point of order. One of them is green. <laughs> but yeah, like, so like it's, it almost, you know, it almost seems like more conspicuous to have her show up for the, co- like the cover photo. Right. And then leave rather than like if if she was not there at all like then it would just be like par for the course oh there's one woman on the team yeah dr light wouldn't at least be treated better in justice league europe where she actually got to join the team yeah but there are some odd choices being made here i know they're serving a bigger plot but i think there are better ways to have them play out and and i think in a different era, they would have played differently. Mm-hmm. So speaking of that, that larger plot, uh, why is Dr. Light there even? She's recruited onto the team by a Maxwell Lord, which brings us to the overarching subplot running under the first year of this series. So Maxwell Lord, as a character, later gets developed and retconned and de-retconned and then re-retconned. So I, you know, I, don't, I don't know where Maxwell Lord is at you know, nowadays, Um, So we're just going to focus on the guy as he appears in these issues. He's a sleazy, cutthroat, ruthless businessman, right? It's, it's 1987. So it's like that kind of idea of what that looks like. He's got an expensive suit. He's got a neat haircut. He enjoys a fine cigar now and again. Um, I believe that he's based visually on Sam Neill in Omen 3. 
Which, if that makes sense, I never <laughs> would have thought of that. But now that you say it, that's perfect. Yeah, you, there there are certain panels where you look at it and it almost looks like it was like like a, like rotoscoped off of yeah. off of Sam Sam Neil. Um. So yeah, he uh, Lord insinuates himself into the Justice League's business unasked, right? And basically takes over running the team. Like he tries to recruit Doctor Light. He succeeds in recruiting Booster Gold. And he uses his connections in business and politics to finagle the deal for the Justice League to become sponsored by the UN and become this international peacekeeping force. And he doesn't consult the League about this ahead of time, right? It's not like, here's my plan. Are you, let's get on board with this. It's just a done deal, right? He does it behind their backs. And like when it happens, the Justice League acknowledge that like it's not a bad idea, right? To, to, to be UN sanctioned or whatever, but like they keep asking themselves, well, what is this guy's deal exactly? What is his angle? Yeah. Yeah. You got two world-class detectives on the team. One of whom, who actually bills himself as the world's greatest, in fact, (laughs) and no one looks too closely at all this shadiness. Batman and John don't ignore the issue to be sure, but they do only a surface level investigation and largely take Lord at face value. Mm-hmm. It almost feels like there should be like another layer of subversion there where like Batman is like paranoid and suspects that Max is this evil genius, but he's actually just squeaky clean and you know, or something. <laughs> but like, but no, like, like Max Lord is pretty much exactly what you would expect, right? There is, he is being manipulated as it turns out, he's the pawn yeah. of a sentient computer who has been manipulating events because it's one of those sentient computers that thinks the world would be better off if the computer was in charge of everything, right? It's a it's sort of a Star Trek computer. Yeah. Um, so, like, yeah, the idea is that, like, the Justice League will be the enforcers for the computer, and the computer will have robot duplicates of all the world leaders under its control, that kind of thing, right? Um, Max rebels against the computer in the end and shuts it down, saving the world from its influence. And because he, you know, bravely acted as the hero... Right. He gets to stay on as the guy running the JLI operation afterwards. So here's some interesting things about Max. He's a millionaire looking to exploit and manipulate some costume heroes for his own ends. Uh He runs multiple false flag operations and he's willing to sacrifice pawns for the greater good. Hmm. Um, He watches a big bank of TVs, which which, as as we all know, must mean Uh. that you're a next level genius, right? So, like, I don't know that the timeline works out for Ozymandias to be, like, the influence or even an influence, right? But, like, it's at least a similar character type. Well, what's interesting is that Max is not presented as a next-level genius. He does appear nefarious on the surface, but he also seems to be generally invested in helping the Justice League. So he's, he's a bit of a puzzle. But his personality is very much used car or salesman. <laughs> he's he's obviously working some kind of angle. It's just hard to figure out what the angle is because there's there's not a lot of clues given to the heroes or the reader. Yeah. I suppose if there is a subversion there, it's that he isn't like good or evil, you know, in, in, in quotes or whatever. He's just sort of I've I've seen I think I've seen descriptions that say he's an amoral businessman, which I think is is right because like you could be amoral and still think it's a good idea to have a justice league just to to protect the world. But, well, but he, think, he, he he does evolve over the series though. He does, but he's also like in his his origin issue, his Watchmen issue, where they he narrates his background. Um, he does explain that he was a a Gordon Gecko type, right? But 
he turned over a new leaf and his alliance with this computer, he, his, his attempts to help the justice league are genuine. Mm-hmm. It's just that he doesn't know how to do that <laughs> without <laughs> using the kind of skills and background that he already has. So he's, I, I definitely can see the parallels with Ozymandias, but I, I think Max is presented as the heroic version of that mm-hmm. in in a way, rather than like the clear cut uh, supervillain that that Adrian Veidt is. The idea that there would have to be like a rich guy pulling the strings of a super team that becomes an idea that sort of pops up throughout the Iron Age. Like image super teams tended to either have like a wealthy benefactor or they were sponsored by the government, so like there would have to be some kind of reason why you know that you can afford all this stuff, right? Back in the Silver and Bronze Ages, it really wasn't questioned where the Justice League got their resources, right? It was just, you just have a satellite, right? And we don't <laughs> worry about it. But like in the Iron Age, like, we, we need an answer for these things. Like who, who who is paying for all this, right? Well, wasn't the answer then just Bruce Wayne? Like, <laughs> the Avengers worked out of the Stark Mansion in New York and were funded by the Maria Stark Foundation. It's not like these ideas were completely ignored, I I think it was just assumed that millionaires became superheroes rather than funding them, <laughs> right. you know, most of the time. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and Mark Wade would would retcon in in a JLA Year One series a few years after this that uh, Green Arrow Oliver Queen was the financier of the original league. So, I guess in some ways, like that's part of the post crisis DC like catching up to what Marvel had been doing already, sort of baking in these answers and making some of these assumptions more explicit. And then, like, taking it even further to look at, like, the actual ramifications of what would happen and what it would mean for, like, a rich guy to, you know, own a super team like this, right? Hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, we've been talking for a while. We've been focusing on the characters and not so much the stories. And that's kind of by design because the comic is focused that way, too. People remember, you know, One Punch a whole lot more than they remember that time that the Justice League fought the Gray Man. Right. That's I think that's how that works out, because like the, the concepts in JLI aren't the big appeal in the way that they are for, you know, Morrison's JLA or even just, you know, the original Silver Age Justice League. The superhero stuff is just more like excuses for these guys to get up to more antics. Right. <laughs> so, so, I mean, like these are these are still firmly superhero comics and there are some developments that we should talk about. Um, we'll break it down very generally. Um, let me know if you want me to. To slow down at any point, but um, <laughs> the, the first issue, right? So the the first issue has the Justice League, like you say, intervening in a hostage crisis at the UN. And you know these aren't like super terrorists; these are just like they 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 wear fatigues. They have you know conventional weaponry for the most part. It's kind of like how you described a lot of the stuff that Superman does in when we talked about Man of Steel as being kind of like. TV scripts, like yeah. things that you could have done on a modest budget. This is like grounded, relatively relatable stuff compared to, you know, space monsters, right? Yeah. And, and this is why I initially turned up my nose at this comic when it first came out. You see the Justice League, you kind of expect the Legion of Doom or an alien invasion or something. A, a bunch of terrorists that the G.I. Joe team could handle without breaking a sweat. Not so much. Yeah. I I again want to call out a particular panel in this issue, which which shows a number of terrorists who Martian Manhunter has struck so hard that they have been driven up into the ceiling, and now they're just dangling there. 
So if this was a gritty, realistic Watchmen comic, these guys would clearly be dead. But <laughs> this is still a Justice League comic book, and we understand that these guys are just, you know, knocked out. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it is, it is revealed that this whole UN hostage situation, um, that's basically a fight that Max Lord has engineered for the League to win. Yeah, it's a huge plot point how lame this battle actually is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, after that, we have two issues of the Justice League versus the Champions of Angor. So these guys are like the DC equivalent of the Squadron Supreme, which seems like that should just mean the Justice League, but it's not. It's actually, <laughs> they're, by that I mean like they're loose Avengers analogs. So um, I don't know how this is pronounced, but Wangina is Thor, uh, Blue Jay is Yellow Jacket, Silver Sorceress is the Scarlet Witch, and the late Captain Speed is Quicksilver. Um, this was entirely lost on me the first time that I read it, even though really? <laughs> yeah, even though I was perfectly aware of who the Avengers were, right? Because it just it's a lot more tenuous than like the Squadron Supreme is obviously the Justice League. Well, because there's no Captain America, Iron Man, or Hulk. There's yeah. also some not cool stuff here because a Wanjana is actually a rain or cloud spirit from Australian Aboriginal beliefs. But here the character named for one is a big, bald, white guy with a battle axe. <laughs> and, like, th Thunder Gods are a dime a dozen in Indo-European mythology, but th they went with a severely whitewashed version instead of someone indigenous for some reason. And this guy does disappear after this appearance. Although Blue Jay and Silver Sorceress eventually join the League, and there's more chicanery from their home world coming down the pipeline. Um, some supervillains from their planet show up. Mm -hmm. um, I think Multiversity would eventually correct this um, this whitewashing situation. Yeah, uh, Morrison actually did, um, Grant Morrison did annotations in their substack about uh, multiversity and commented, you know, I, I think fairly, you know, generously that like, oh yeah, like the writer for the original story probably just like opened up a big book of, you know, world mythology and saw like, oh, Wanda, you know, Wanjana, that's an, that's an interesting name, right? And just like used it. And the artist probably just went, you know, without a specific direction, just went, you know, the white as default thing. So it probably was just, Nobody really thinking about it before, right? And now we, you know, do for the for the better. So the idea with these analogs is that their planet or their dimension, I'm, I'm not exactly sure how this works cosmologically in the, in the post-crisis DC universe, but right. um, <laughs> where, <laughs> right, wherever they come from, it was just devastated by nuclear war. And now they're here to prevent this from happening on our planet by ridding the world of nukes. So you got nuclear anxiety, Superheroes imposing unilateral solutions on humanity. Does this sound like anything that we've been talking about in the show recently? Mm, doesn't ring a bell. <laughs> yeah. So, like, there is a political dimension being explored here that, you know, other things that we've been talking about over the past month or two have also been exploring. Mm -hmm. So, like, the nuke busters here attempt to go bust up some missile silos in Russia and the Justice League, you know, naturally attempts to stop them. But the League isn't welcome in Russia because they are all nominally American superheroes. You know, they're the, the, the Justice League of America still. And, you know, it's the Cold War. So this eventually precipitates the move to becoming an internationally recognized peacekeeping force 
so that you don't have situations like this, right? Both in terms of plot, but also to address like a broader concern that's brought up by Watchmen, which is, you know, in what ways would superheroes destabilize international relations? Like how would, how would being a superhero work on a global scale? Um, and unlike Watchmen, we actually see that the USSR has their own superheroes. They have an, a team of armored guys called the Rocket Reds. So this actually was Steve Englehart's idea over in Green Lantern. But I assume that the thought process is like, well, if superheroes are sort of typically independent and highly individualistic, in Soviet Russia, you have, you know, a bunch of guys in these identical, you know, sort of clunky industrial looking armors that are provided by the government. Like their their power quite literally comes from the state, right? It, yeah, and it's kind of a neat idea and, and subversive too because the Rocket Red Brigade was built by one of the Green Lanterns. The big pink pig-like guy, Kilowog, comes from a planet of communists. <laughs> so he finds the USSR the most amenable civilization on Earth when he, when he visits and, and feels like helping him out. <laughs> So yeah, so like this is, you know, this comes out in the late Reagan era, you know, at the, at the tail end of rhetoric about the evil empire. But these are, these rocket red guys are portrayed as like reasonable, heroic people who are, you know, opposing the Justice League because they are acting on orders from the government. But they also do just genuinely want to help, right? And one of them will actually eventually join the Justice League when they make the move to international status. And Blue Beetle will say at one point, you know, whoever said better dead than red never met this bunch. So like, you know, here's, here's like our most sympathetic character telling us like, these guys are all right. Yeah. And it's important to remember that this was also the era of Glasnost with Mikhail Gorbachev, who actually appears in this series, uh, uncredited naturally as the USSR premier who pushed for a thawing of relations between Russia and the West. Because Unlike Adrian Veidt, Gorbachev saw the actual writing on the wall at the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and like, you know, removing the of America from Justice League of America anticipates this too, right? Like that was a holdover from the Justice Society of the 1940s, whereas yeah. now like there is, there's a caption in like the seventh issue where they make the move to the international title that like this, we have to start thinking about what about a world with no borders or at least fewer borders, right, during, than during the Cold War. Um, but yeah, like the, the basic worldview of the series and like when these Russian characters appear, the, the, the Rocket Reds, it seems to be like basically people on both sides of the Cold War are basically all right. You know, like they're all, everybody's reasonable, everybody's friendly enough. It's just that like politics complicates things. Yeah, pretty much in the mid to late 80s, this was the time when you'd get a character on TV saying to their, their Russian counterpart or whatever. In another time, we could be friends. And <laughs> and there actually was considerably less evil empire rubbish in, in media, I think because of that, that thawing. Mm -hmm. So issue four, the Justice League fend off an attack on their headquarters by the Royal Flush Gang. They're like some playing card themed bad guys from DC lore. Um, I always think of the the Royal Flush Gang as being kind of like the Wrecking Crew at Marvel. I think we mentioned them in, in Thunderbolts, where they're just like colorful but uncomplicated bad guys that you can slot in anytime you need a fight without a whole lot of baggage or exposition. Like these guys are themed like construction workers. These guys are themed like playing cards. Like I, I, I just I get it, right? We don't need to, we don't need their life story. Yeah, basically, and and they're conveniently also designed to be 
competent enough or or powerful enough to actually go up against a team like the Justice League. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're a credible threat, although they're obviously going to get trounced. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's once again, this is another attack engineered by Max Lord to increase the visibility and viability of the league. And he also uses this situation to sneak his pledge booster gold onto the roster. Mm-hmm. So after that, there's a story with a mystical enemy called the Gray Man, who steals dream energies from humans. Um, this is a Dr. Fate-focused story that the rest of the Justice League just kind of get roped into. You know, like they don't do a whole lot other than mm-hmm. getting taken out. <laughs> and then, and then like, then Dr. Fate decides, you know, time to get serious and cleans up the mess, right? So like, that's that. The the creeper shows up because I guess, you know, Giffen likes him. It's a, that's a natural character for a guy like Giffen to gravitate to. Yeah, well, I mean, who doesn't love a Steve Ditko character? Um, there's, There's been a subplot along the way that this crusading TV conservative pundit Jack Ryder has been highly critical of the new Justice League, despite the fact that Ryder is also the chaotic neutral superhero known as the Creeper. So it's less random than it might seem. But yeah, the Creeper shows up to say and and do silly things while the Justice League continually gets hammered by the Gray Man. Yeah. Uh, something that I noticed, like reading this with, you know, a, a more critical eye is that I don't know if it's made explicit that Ryder and the Creeper are the same guy. Like it's, you know, treated as assumed knowledge. And like, I read it like that, you know, but it seems like it might go over the head of the, the mythical new reader. I don't know. Well, I, I think there's a winking, you know, Jack Ryder disappeared and the, and the Creeper showed up, which is, you know, not hard to puzzle out if you've ever read a superhero comic before. <laughs> sure. But yeah, this arc, you know, we're not, you know, not my favorite, right? It's, it's sort of the height of the superhero action isn't the point of, of this comic. Well, it's, it's a perfect example of my least favorite kind of superhero story where the heroes just lose and lose and lose until suddenly they don't. There's no justification <laughs> or explanation for the tide turning. It, it just happens. As you said, Dr. Fate spends the entirety of this two-parter as a captive of the Gray Man until the end. When the Justice League lies broken and defeated, Dr. Fate says, Oh, oh yeah, I've been holding back this whole time, you know, (laughs) totally, seriously, but I was, you know, just trying to be a nice guy. (laughs) And then um, he just punks the Gray Man in, like, two panels. And yeah. Uh, this is why most people hate magic stories in superhero comics. The stakes are so nebulous that the struggles themselves appear pointless. And critics of superhero media rightfully point out that there is no compelling drama in watching two invulnerable demigods pound on one another to no effect. And this kind of story is like that, but to the nth degree. It's, I, yeah, I I didn't like it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's there's still like lots of other good you know character bits in the in the issue. I mean, this is this is the issue like the the story the arc in which like the one punch happens. So yeah. Lots of other good stuff that's like worth your time to read. It's just like the actual if you're like if you're grading for like my Justice League plot, right? Yeah, the actual then, superhero plot is just bollocks. It's <laughs> <laughs> but you know it's but like again that's it's like you're you're here for everything else at at this point, and you're like okay, yeah. well, I guess this is what we have to. This is what we're going to play through so that they have an excuse to get together and hang out. And it's, it, it's, it's like, it's like on the office, like you're not actually like invested in the, the, you know, future of this paper company. It's, <laughs> that's, 
it's why it's why they're hanging out together. It's like I said earlier about the transition from all, all action, all plot to um, Peter Parker and Banana Bread. Um, <laughs> we're not quite at the point where two people in, with their underwear on the outside of their pants sitting down to talk about um, the movies they like is enough to fill 22 pages <laughs> of a comic book. You, you actually have to inject some kind of action and threat uh, as pointless as that might seem but within the the story just to to sell it as a superhero story so mm-hmm. yeah uh, moving on to issue seven they wreck an alien satellite that appears to be attacking the earth with a laser and i you know I, I i guess that it is but um this is also kind of a fixed fight like mr miracle realizes that the lasers are something he recognizes they're something that's designed not to hurt the justice league so this is all like you know this is all theater specifically engineered by Max and the computer so that the Justice League can very visibly save the day from what appears to be an unambiguous threat and that will boost public opinion. And it works, right? Because the, the UN doesn't know that it's been a setup. So they accept Max's proposal based on this and it officially sanctions the Justice League. Issue seven is the issue where the title actually shifts from just Justice League to Justice League International. Uh, there's some turnover as well. Uh, Dr. Phaeton, uh Captain Marvel, as we mentioned, leave. Uh, Batman steps down as leader. The U.S. and Soviet Union each send an official representative to join. So the U.S. sends Captain Adam. Russia sends the rocket, one of the Rocket Reds. Um, again, sort of grappling with political realities in a way that would have been unheard of several years before. You know, like because like Watchmen creates a world that's real enough so that it sort of rejects superheroes like a like a body rejecting an organ right <laughs> we keep talking about like watchmen just sets up like in the real world yes superheroes would be totally useless and you would, they would you know not function and we would we would outlaw them whereas like the post-crisis dc universe has enough you know it has real world flavoring right it's got it's flavored like the real world but it's still dominated by the superhero narrative so it finds a way to accommodate the justice league yeah, it's approaching a happy medium for those of us who like the long underwear types, but also expect a bit of plausibility in our fictional universes. Mm-hmm. I don't think this is solely a reaction to Watchmen, although I do, I do agree with you that that is part of it. But I think it's also part of the reality of the audience changing, as we, we've mm-hmm. talked about before. Yeah, changing the roster is one thing, and that's you know part of the fun of team books, right? But changing the roster and the concept and the status quo and the title of the actual comic itself by the seventh issue, that's a a pretty unique maneuver here in the realm of superhero comics, especially at this time. Do you think that's meant to sort of, you know, draw a line under the unpredictability of this new DC universe? Like, because, you know, the, the Justice League of America basically adhered to like a single status quo from, you know, 1970 when they moved into the satellite to the Justice League Detroit in 84. So like that's, you know, every one of those issues is basically like you don't need to put it in a strict order necessarily. They all sort of, they all sort of make sense if you move them around. But like, you know, in this like post-crisis era, like you can't miss an issue, you know, because then all of a sudden there'll be different members and... Guy Gardner's acting nice, and I'm. I, what's going on? I, I can't miss this issue. So, do you think that's like Giffen and Demetrius plotting on the fly? Because, like, like you mentioned, like Captain Marvel and Doctor Fate just seem like ideas that don't work out, then they have to kind of broom them, you know? Well, I, I think there is a lot of improv in these first seven issues. 
I think that's just how Giffen plotted the book. And I'm sure as he and, and DiMatteis figured out how to work together, certain things rose to the top or fell by the wayside. But I also think that this was the basic plan from the get-go. Lord's maneuvering to build the League up has been the major ongoing subplot since the first issue and, and won't really be resolved until the end of the first year. So I think if unpredictability is the goal, I mean, obviously the goal is, is to sell comics. And so <laughs> if that um, things will keep changing every issue is a is a way to get people to sell comics, then yeah, that that is the idea but i i think it was really just start from this nebulous justice league concept and build up to the jli i think that mm. was always going to happen yeah and i suppose it's also like going back and reading it we're reading this in like a big chunk and we're reading it you know probably several issues in, in at, a, at a time you would have had like six months to get used to the idea of the you know status quo of the justice league and then that that's half a year, and then the, then the title changes. It's like okay, well, that's where it's a more gradual evolution than just sitting down with like a big chunk of of back issues. Yeah, yeah. Issue eight has the Justice League moving into their new embassy headquarters around the world, and I think that this is maybe like the most important issue in talking about the early JLI because this issue is the first one that's pure sitcom, pretty much, and and paves the way for how this iteration of the league is remembered. Because Giffen and DiMatteis say, you know, in addition to like, we didn't set out to make this sort of like weird second stringer team, they didn't really set out to make a comedy series per se. Like there's a lot of banter and jokes in the first seven issues, but you know, on some level, some level that's down to, to scripting. Like if you keep in mind the writing method, you can imagine somebody else scripting this who plays this stuff a little bit straighter, like, like an Avengers comic or something, right? Or, or, or at least less explicitly comedic maybe hey i don't know i i think i mean it looks to me like giffen is leaving space for jokes and and mcguire certainly drawing funny expressions on people's faces and Mm. like the one punch is absolutely set up as a comedic moment and and doesn't require any dialogue to get the joke across Oh yeah, but I just I mean like um you know the Avengers had comic relief too they had like Beast and Wonder Man were kind of the the Beetle and Booster of their day, but Demetrius I think is like really just hitting those back and forth wisecracks the volume is a lot it's a lot greater than they are if you know if you had had Roger Stern script this or something <laughs> I, think, I think I think there was, there would still be jokes and stuff but it would just be, it would be less of that kind of sitcom banter right i guess i guess i'm just not sure if that comes solely from dimatteis or from giffen and dimatteis hashing things out during those those lunches or over the phone Mm -hmm. but yeah i mean like this issue is pretty much pure hijinks from the plot on down right like Mm -hmm. there's no there's not even not even like we're not going to deal you know bother with like fighting a supervillain thing so their new york embassy turns out to have shoddy construction so like you know john will fall through the floor (laughs) Uh, Captain Adam shorts out the power because their wiring's not good. Um, Mr. Miracle lands a new aircraft on the roof because, you know, all superhero teams just land their their crafts or whatever on the roof and it's fine. But, like, in the real world, buildings are not meant to take, you know, <laughs> aircraft just landing on the roof so it, it collapses through. So uh, all sorts of, like, wacky business going on there. Meanwhile, at the Paris Embassy... Booster tries to strike up a conversation with just a woman that he sees on the street and he strikes out, right? She turns him down. And then she turns out to be their official, like, 
you know, local liaison for the Paris embassy. And I, this is what I, I believe prompts the first actual bwa-ha-ha-ha from, from Blue Beetle. Yeah, and I I honestly laughed out loud at that part. Um, <laughs> the, the situation is inherently funny, but the way McGuire masterfully conveys all the body language, again, from Booster's embarrassment to Ted's hilarity, it's it just so great. It's like... First, Ted is laughing about how Booster struck out on the street, and then when she shows up at the embassy, he just completely <laughs> loses it. Like he's doubling over and <laughs> laughing so hard, and Booster's just so like, um, "Come on, man, get over it. It's not funny. It's actually yeah. kind of embarrassing. Kind of, can we just forget this kind of thing? It's just so ah, <laughs> uh, it's so good. It's just ah, uh, they feel like real. They feel like real people." Like mm-hmm. they're not the unattainable, unassailable gods of the DC universe, like the big seven, you know, um, cosmic beings. These are just like like they punch in and they punch out, and <laughs> they <laughs> they have problems that are relatable, like you know, not being able to get someone's phone number <laughs> and. Right. And, you know, your wingman thinks it's funny. It's it's just good. It's just good <laughs> yeah. stuff. And that, that, that's, again, like part of the, like, I feel like a more nuanced and realistic depiction of like a friendship because like you would laugh at your friend if that happened, right? It, it, would, <laughs> it, it would be, it would be funny, right? So it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily have to be like we treat everything very solemnly and I'll always, you know, I'll always be here to, you know, to be a shoulder to cry. And it's like, hey, <laughs> yeah, my, my <laughs> My friend didn't get her number. That's funny. I'm gonna laugh, so, but we're but we're, but we're still gonna be okay, basically as, yeah. as friends, right? Well, yeah. part of it part of it is too is it is showing support for your friend to some extent because you're trying to lighten it and show it's like not that important, so they don't right. have to feel that bad about it. Um, but it's also <laughs> you are laughing at them, not with them. So, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So all all this humor, like if. If the Iron Age is older readers dealing with the fact that superheroes are kind of silly, but not wanting to stop reading superheroes. And so like one approach to sort of reconcile that is to take it, you know, very deadly seriously. And, you know, it's, it's not funny actually that these guys wear, you know, tights and, and underpants on the outside or whatever. And the other approach is to sort of lean into it and make self-awareness part of the appeal. Yes. Um, similar to the way that Grant Morrison rejected Moore and Gibbons' attempt to break superheroes and, and went their own way w- with the idea of costume adventures, Giffen and DeMatteis sort of take the idea of a realistic superheroes at face value, but then admit that superheroes are absurd to start with. So mm-hmm. let's run with that. But in a quasi-realistic manner, like the world around them feels realistic and in in many ways these characters are responding to the absurdity around them in realistic ways like you or i would by Mm -hmm. making jokes (laughs) yeah and in fact it it sort of strikes me like when i was reading this uh back that in a way like the avengers movies right especially like the first joss whedon-y ones those kind of resembled jli more than they resembled any (laughs) actual avengers comics that you might have read before Yes, uh, absolutely. Like, like when you have Captain America making jokes or at least wry observations, that is very much JLI territory. Yeah, undercutting stuff and, and all that. 
So after the breather move-in issue, we go into a two-issue tie-in to Millennium, which was the big DC crossover for that year. Um, I'll spare you my attempt to summarize Millennium. I'm not entirely sure that I understand it all <laughs> myself. At some point. Um, but it will have a greater <laughs> understanding, for sure. <laughs> Oh, don't threaten me with that. That's a threat, not a promise. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, the the relevant bit for our purposes here, right? You don't you don't need to know everything yet. Oh god. <laughs> uh, the relevant bit for for this is there's a bunch of superheroes who find out that a member of their supporting cast are actually like robot spies called manhunters. So Rocket Red number four turns out that he is a manhunter. They deal with him. Um, he gets replaced by Rocket Red number seven. So like we still have a Russian member on the team. We just get a different, you know, a different guy under the helmet. Um, Max's secretary turns out to be a manhunter and she shoots Max. And I think we're pretty much done with Millennium here. Oh, hold on. Hold on. <laughs> Not yet. You thought you were safe. But uh, I'm going to call out that Hawkman and Hawkgirl guest star in one of these issues. And the perennially humorless stick in the mud catch our hole is deliberately depicted as not meshing well with a new tone of the justice league book but more importantly in reference to our episode on hawk world this cannot now have been catter hall and share a thou this would have been fell andar and his human wife sharon parker as far as quote-unquote official continuity goes but of course my issues have not been relettered to reflect that fact. <laughs> so this is just an artifact that reflects the messiness of the crisis on infinite earths and the convoluted nonsense surrounding Hawkman. And I just want to call it out because we actually have covered that title. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. For more, for more information, my asterisk here is for more information about Hawkworld and Hawkman, see your issue uh, episode on Hawkworld. Jocular Justin. <laughs> Jocular Justin. <laughs> I was I, I can never figure out what my what my Marvel alliterative name was. <laughs> Jocular Justin is, is probably probably as good as we as we would get. I don't know that anybody else has that taken, so um I'm gonna put that down. That's just off the dome. <laughs> it's 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 a it's a good impulse though. It's good. Thanks. Good, good brainstorm. <laughs> so yeah, finally getting to the uh the end of the first year. Um in the big finale. Max Lord reveals his hand and everything that's been happening to the Justice League so far and the role of the computer controlling him. Like you say, there's the sort of Watchmen-y origin issue. Um, it should be noted that Max is actually the one who ultimately decides and, you know, takes steps to defeat the computer while the Justice League are dealing with the distraction. Like a, a giant robot, but like not the giant robot that you need to defeat to, to stop the situation. So like that brings me to a question. Does it bother you at all? how ineffectual the Justice League is being portrayed in these issues. Like reading them all at once, especially really calls this out. There are very few things that the Justice League actually does collectively to resolve a given situation in this first year of stories. Like they get involved when something happens and they have fight scenes and stuff, but like someone or something else usually resolves the problem for them. When they, when they're fighting the, the champions of Angor, the Avengers analogs, they don't come up with like a clever plan for how to beat them. They just sort of fight until they damage a nuclear reactor. And then uh, Wandaja decides he's going to sacrifice himself to prevent the meltdown. Cause that's, you know, that's sort of the greater good. So like the league doesn't really get like a, a clear win there. Right. It just sort of, the story ends. 
Yeah, the title is rife with anticlimax. I, I don't know if that's by accident or design, but it is certainly the effect. So I found the conclusion to the Max Lord storyline incredibly underwhelming. His secret partner isn't a former Justice League foe or even a new one. It's just a computer that Metron <coughs> of the New Gods use for data collection which somehow gained sapience and teamed up with Max to set various events in motion. This computer is such a non-entity, it doesn't even have a name or a <laughs> body. It's literally just a computer in a wall, which Max destroys with a fire axe when he gets his big hero moment. Meanwhile, the League is a 100 miles away, having just fought a giant robot controlled by the computer, I guess. And then explain what's going on to Metron, who shuts the computer down. But the computer wirelessly transfers its consciousness to Max's office. It's a little confusing and (laughs) perhaps deliberately underplayed. Yeah, and it is another bit that could be done, you know, on a modestly budgeted TV show, right? Like, the giant robot is properly old school comic book-y. But, like, you know, Max taking an axe to the computer is deliberately human-scaled. I mean, an episode, you know, an episode of Star Trek wouldn't have ended with, you know, Kirk taking an axe to a computer probably. But, like, this, <laughs> it, it, it's the same basic idea of, like, there's something in a wall and I got I to gotta get, gotta get rid of it. I got to create a logic problem yeah. that I can't solve. So, I got, my question is, is the part of the comedy supposed to be that the League itself doesn't actually do anything? <laughs> like, their primary enemy was actually trying to help them <laughs> make the world safer and they basically play into its hands and then don't actually resolve the situation like Max does the heavy lifting. Mm-hmm. It's a disappointment narratively speaking that the heroes are not all that heroic or even super really, but I think that this title makes up for that lack in other ways. It still manages to be fun, for example. If this were grim and the theme was the pointlessness of superheroics, this would be a slog. Mm -hmm. But whatever it's saying about the pointlessness of superheroes is laced with so much good humor and genuine affection for both the characters and the genre, it remains entertaining to read. Oh yeah, like the fun of it definitely makes up for whatever kind of like, you know, traditional superhero narrative quibbles that I, w- I, w- I would have. And that's like the, that's the Giffen tone, right? And I, I, you know, and, and Demetrius is, is totally in lockstep with that too. That it's, you know, irreverent and we're making fun of stuff here, but we're not like looking down on superheroes or saying it's a big waste of time or, you know, like look at how clever I am because I point out these things. It's just like, we all, we all know that we're, what we're doing here with superheroes. Yeah. We're all just having a good time, right? But um, yeah. To your point about like, is it is it the point that they don't do anything? Like something that Rorschach says in Watchmen and in the the flashback to the Crime Busters meeting is that like a group like that. See, he says like it seems like unwieldy. Like it's a, more of a publicity exercise than something that's going to be actually useful. And that's kind of what this Justice League proves, right? Like if you put these egos together in one room and you make them have to consider the political ramifications of what they do. And you have to force them to operate in like an, you know, an organization with oversight rather than just, you know, being a clubhouse full of gods looking down on the earth from a satellite. Like you render them not very effective. 
Yeah, the series does poke some holes in the idea of a superhero team. They're dysfunctional and ineffective. They spend more time arguing and joking than they do saving the world. And it's actually the nefarious, shadowy, secret computer manipulating events from behind the scenes that actually gets things done. <laughs> I guess I, I don't know if this is deconstruction or just goofing around, though. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, who's to say how deliberate this all is? Um, I do tend to think maybe it is just sort of more like this is a, a fun idea rather than, a, you know, a, a serious treatise on what the superhero means. And it is just a, a shift in priorities, right? Like Silver Age Justice League comics were almost pure plot, right? And like Marvel invested in characterization and soap opera to the point that, you know, your, your dedicated, you know, Spider-Man fans would say, well, we, we read more for Peter Parker than we do for Spider-Man, right? Like that's a claim that is sometimes made. But like, like this, this, this takes it a, a step even further. Like it sometimes feels like we've been saying like the superhero stuff is just sort of to keep up appearances, right? Like people would be, people would be confused if we didn't have a fight in here somewhere. So we just have to sort of do it for the sake of doing it. But yeah, especially reading a bunch of these in a row, it, the pat, like the passivity, the resolutions kind of bugs me because like one of the things that I actually like about superhero comics is watching these guys come up with, you know, clever lateral thinking solutions like, this is how you read, like, Silver Age comics, I think. Like, if anybody has ever wondered, like, what, you know, tried reading Silver Age comics and gone, I just can't connect to this. Like, what do you, what do you people see in these things? Like, I think it is, <laughs> right? Like, that that's fair, right? Like, especially if you're, like, looking for more characterization. But I think, like, the way that you read Silver Age comics is as these sort of, like, weird narrative puzzles. Like, given all, the, like, the assumptions of how Mr. Mix's Pitlick works, how do you make him say his name backwards, in a way that he hasn't actually done before, right? It's it's all just like these like sort of like weird puzzles and solutions. Or or how do you get Jimmy Olsen to marry an ape? <laughs> right. Yeah. And why? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, the the creative team didn't really expect this to take off. Um, I saw an interview that they gave at a comic convention, and uh, Giffen was like, "Well, I." I didn't think this if this was going to work. I thought I was going to get fired and they were going to do some, you know, some kind of third Justice League thing in a, in a, in a couple of months. Uh, Dimatteis didn't think that he was needed there because he thought that Giffen was doing a good job enough, you know, with his own suggestions and his own writing that he mm. could just take care of that. So he was expecting to, to like leave at any time. Uh, McGuire as well. He thought like, well, this is going to be the end of my career. <laughs> so I guess maybe I can get it. I can get back to the production department at Marvel again if they'll have me. But, you know, this this humor and characterization-heavy approach proves very successful. So many Iron Age comics will try to horn in on, you know, the Claremont X-Men territory or, you know, the Miller Dark Knight kind of territory and go grim and gritty. But JLI really differentiates itself in terms of tone. You know, I, I think it's, it's, it's refreshing, like, even now, and I think it was refreshing at the time. And for the, for the first time, the Justice League becomes a franchise. There had never been more than one Justice League book at a time, but a separate Justice League Europe book gets launched in 1989. This is the team that Buddy Baker joins. We've talked about an animal man. And at that point, Justice League International gets retitled Justice League America, but not Justice League of America. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> it wrecks havoc with the filing system. I, I assure you, that's my, that's my only concern about all of this. The numbers are consecutive. It's not a problem. <laughs> but you got to move them. I, I move them around. 
And there's a quarterly book as well. There's a, a Justice League quarterly book that does more like sort of one-off stories about you know individual members. Um, Giffen and DeMatteis stay on through 1992. Uh, they say that they maybe should have left a little bit earlier, but you know they, the series was successful and they, they were chugging along. They take the series that was originally titled Justice League through issue 60. They go out in one of those big you know 90s crossovers called Breakdowns. Something like 13 or 14 parts, depending on how you count it. You know, like one of those huge unwieldy things. But that ends with the UN revoking their sponsorship. And it leads to the creation of multiple new teams. And they replace Justice League Europe with a new series titled Justice League International. Just to screw with you. <laughs> just, just to mess up how I organize things. So Yeah. 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 And, and just to tease more future potential episodes we should probably check in with those runs somewhere down the line oh yeah yeah they're not my favorite but like they have (laughs) they have much to teach us right (laughs) yeah the period after that is less successful um dc sort of starts chasing trends that are popular at image and marvel rather than defying them like they were doing here you get things like extreme justice looking like, you know, every cliche of the 90s comic, right? Just gritted teeth and the word extreme in the title. Yeah, the big letter X, little E, yeah. big X, dream. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty shameless, yeah. By 1996, the market crash was being felt everywhere, and there were too many Justice League titles as it was, and they weren't selling well anyway. So the entire line gets canceled to make way for Grant Morrison's JLA reboot, which is a story for, again, another episode. Or possibly episodes. Oh, definitely plural. But the legacy of what Giffen and DeMatteis and McGuire did here endures, and they they frequently reunite over the years. There's at least one uh, late 90s reunion in a short story in a JLA 80-page giant. I have that one. Yep. Um, it's Beetle and Booster trying to get a mouse that's loose in the, in the, in the cave headquarters. Uh, in 2003, they did a miniseries called Formerly Known as the Justice League that reunited these characters or some of these characters. Um, and there was a 2005 sequel in the JLA classified anthology title called I Can't Believe It's Not the Justice League. Um, funnily enough, that came out at a time when some of these characters were being portrayed uh, much differently elsewhere. Yeah, about that. Um, <laughs> so I I actually went to a convention in New York City back when I still worked at the comic shop. And I was able to get Giffen, McGuire, and Inker Terry Austin to sign my copy of Justice League number one. And I remember both Giffen and McGuire being visibly agitated about something. Giffen in particular, he was sort of getting up and sitting down and then getting up again in his booth like he was too worked up to sit still. In retrospect, those of us who were there pieced together, they might have recently been informed that their their six issue storyline for I can't believe it's it's not the Justice League had been pushed back a year and, and wouldn't see the light of day until two thousand five. Now, Countdown to Infinite Crisis came out at about the halfway through the storyline, and sort of completely invalidated everything that Giffen, DeMatteis, and McGuire were doing with those characters or ever did with those characters. <laughs> yeah. And I, I don't believe they knew then what was going to happen to the, the those beloved characters in 2005, 
But uh, pushing the publication of the series back so far was probably not a good sign. And I think that's what got Giffen in particular yeah. so worked up. Yeah, for anybody who doesn't know, uh, that Countdown to Infinite Crisis issue ends with uh, Max Lord shooting a blue beetle in the head and there's brains <laughs> everywhere. So, um, whether, whether yeah, I'm, I'm sure if they were annoyed by having their thing pushed back, I can only, only imagine what it, what happens when you <laughs> open up that, that issue and go like, hey, so final thoughts on revisiting JLI after all these years. There's a definite groundedness to these stories that seems to come directly from Watchmen, but more plausibly was coming from the same place that produced Watchmen, Mm -hmm. just given the the timing of the publication. These absurd superhero characters are forced to deal with political realities like hostile borders, rogue governments, a distrustful public, and good old-fashioned nuclear anxiety. They also have to contend with one another's extreme personalities. <laughs> but these stories still clearly take place in a recognizable DC universe, which operates on laws and rules that the DC universe has taken for granted since 1938. It's where these two ways of looking at the world collide that you get the trademark humor for which this series is best known. It's sort of halfway between Watchmen's disdain for genre trappings while wholeheartedly embracing them and Squadron Supreme's wallowing within them while pointing out how icky so many of them all are. (laughs) Justice League's conclusion seems to be, you know, like, gosh, fellas, isn't this all a little silly? Let's have a laugh. (laughs) Even though the stories themselves might cover the fallout of a global thermonuclear exchange or the dissolution of a Vermont town at the hands of an angry god or a Chernobyl-level disaster or a giant frickin' laser beam cutting a swath across California from a satellite in space. In the midst of all these stressful situations, you have a, a guy dressed up as a bat, a huge green naked man, a golly gee whiz teen, a caricature of toxic masculinity and, and two bros in spandex trying to have a good time between bouts of saving the world. <laughs> I mean, I love it. I mean, hands down. It's not my favorite flavor of superheroes, but it's one I, I genuinely enjoy. And this is a title I, I come back to and reread occasionally. Yeah, me too. I, uh, I have most of these in, in single issues and I, you know, it's, it's, it's very, I said that it wasn't like a warm, fuzzy feeling thing for me, but like it's it's an adopted warm, fuzzy feeling <laughs> thing for me. Um, yeah, I, I agree with everything that you said, you know, on, on all counts. Um, I think that's well stated. I do think that it turns out it's something that I enjoy reading a few of at a time rather than like powering through 12 issues at a stretch. Because, <laughs> um, it, it, you know, like the, the, the consistency of the humor can be like a little exhausting, in the same way that like people who didn't grow up on like studio audience, like three camera sitcoms will sometimes say, you know, I, I find those a little bit much or whatever. I think that like the, the way that like the justice leaguers are always sort of on and like the setups and punchlines being pretty relentless. It's like when you, by the end of like the 11th issue or so, you're like, Oh, I'm just, I need to, I need to take a break and <laughs> get up and mow the lawn or something. Um, yeah. And, and you know, when, when we're talking about like, Hmm, the Justice League don't affect the outcome. How does that conflict with my superhero sensibilities or whatever? Like we had, you know, similar quibbles about the first arc of Ultimate Spider-Man, how that 
uh, Green Goblin fight just sort of ends. And, you know, I, I don't complain about playing that Indiana Jones spends the climax of Raiders of the Lost Ark with his eyes closed and tied to a post. Because it's, it's just, it's just good, right? Like, I just like it more than, you know, than uh, Ultimate Spider-Man. So, yeah, I, I, I just like it, right? It's, uh, the tone is good. It's dense and warm and chewy like a chocolate chip cookie. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, no, no wonder this is like a, like a, like a comfort food thing for fans, right? Yeah. Cool. Uh, so what is next? I guess I get to pick now. So, you know what? Um, we should probably keep this Watchmen train going and do the authority next. But I had so much fun with this lighter approach to superheroes. I think we should focus on humor instead. But like I said, there's not a lot of superhero comics in the Iron Age that take the silliness up to 11. So I think we should take a foray into the independent scene. Another one of those black and white titles that cropped up during this period. It's kind of a funny animal comic too, since one of its primary inspirations was the Donald Duck comics of Karl Barks. But the other primary inspiration was J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. That's right, Justin. I want to finally do Bone. Starting with ah. the first collected trade, which for me means the complete Bone Adventures Volume 1, which covers the same issues collected and out from Boneville for anyone playing at home. That will be three weeks from now because of the extra Wednesday in January, but we'll have a bonus episode to tide you over. That will be a, a surprise to, to you and uh, possibly also to us. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, if you subscribe or follow the Iron Age of Comics on your podcasting app of choice, we'll just show up in your feed whenever, you know, whenever these things come out. Um, if you leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, we'll read it out on air. Uh, those reviews and follows do help us get out there because the algorithm looks at the number of five-star reviews and follows and says, well, it must be a good podcast, right? Let's, that's recommended to other people. So, like, that's how it sort of, you know, uh, spirals out there. But the best thing that you can do... If you like the show and you want to help us grow is to get the word out, just tell people about us, right? There's a lot of podcasts in the world, but I know that I respond to personal recommendations more than anything else. So um, consider that if you would, but hey, just thanks for listening. And for the Iron Age of Comics, I have been Justin Zyduck. I have been Jim Cannon. Good night. Good night.